everyone. I am Minar Adley. I'm the founder and director of Mint Press News and your host of Mintcast Podcast. I'm joined by my host and my co-host and our senior staff writer, the brilliant Alan McLeod. It's been a while, but how are you doing, Alan? It really has been a while, hasn't it? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well, um, although a bit disturbed by some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Um, uh, the Congress just voted to keep U.S. troops inside Somalia on the ground. So AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command, and Somalia's President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed are both asking for a larger U.S. presence, more funds, more weapons, more drones, and fewer restrictions on how they are to be used. So right now, and for the last few decades, Somalia represents another forever war and drone war that fuels the military-industrial complex under the guise of fighting the war on terror. U.S. weapons and presence here is only exacerbating the violence and giving strength to the very terror the U.S. claims to be fighting. So located in the strategic horn of Africa, Somalia not only has the longest coastline in Africa, but perhaps the world's largest untapped coastal oil reserves. In 2021, so just a few years ago, the Somali government signed a $7 million oil exploration deal with the Houston, Texas-based company Coastline. So there's a lot to unpack here and joining us today to discuss exactly what the U.S. is doing in the Horn of Africa is Anne Garrison. Anne is a journalist and a contributing editor to the Black Agenda Report. You can also find her work at the Gray Zone and at Pacifica Radio. Welcome to the show, and Thanks for having me. So the United States military presence is officially there um, to quash terrorism in the region, but you have said that American troops on the ground in Somalia actually help insurgent groups like Al-Shabaab recruit and grow. And by the way, most people who are watching the mainstream corporate media, if they consume the New York Times, the Washington Post, I mean, they rarely, rarely hear about Somalia and the victims of our drone wars um, there. So can you explain um, how U.S. presence in Somalia um, helps insurgent groups like Al-Shabaab recruit and grow? Well, they're resented. It's not helping at all that these drones keep hitting civilians. Uh, it's documented, Amnesty International has documented that they've hit many civilians uh, and destroyed their livestock, which in this part of the world to destroy their livestock is like destroying the, the entire family's wealth. Um, the U.S. AFRICOM will not admit to anything like the numbers that Amnesty International cites. I can't remember the numbers exactly, but... But Amnesty International says there are far more civilians who've been hit by these drone strikes than the U.S. government is willing to acknowledge. Um, so how big a force is Al-Shabaab then um, in Somalia, I wonder? Uh, do they control territory at all? And if the U.S. troop presence is actually exacerbating the problem that it's meant to solve, uh, then why are American troops in Somalia then? Do they have an ulterior motive? I'm sure there's several ulterior motives. One is just that the region is so geostrategic. I'll get back to your question about the numbers of troops and whether or not they control territory. But first to answer about ulterior motives, this is a hugely geostrategic region. 
Uh, you have the Gulf of Aden, uh, the the Gulf of Aden, which the Suez Canal dumps into uh, through the Bab el Mandeb Straits, and forty percent of the world's trade passes through the Suez Canal, including about ten percent of its oil. And then, if you look at the oil going through the Straits of Hormuz, that adds up to about forty percent of the oil on the move every day. Uh, it's right at the interface between Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, and the ports on, on the Somali coast, which is the longest coastline in Africa, are hugely valuable and hugely geostrategic. And then there's the oil. Um, it may have the largest untapped oil reserves. I've been, they, they are still untapped for a number of reasons, but this company that you mentioned, Coastline Exploration, is one of the sorts of companies that explores and tries to get concessions and then tries to sell them to major oil companies like Exxon and so forth. Um, there are a number of those swarming around, um, but they haven't drilled yet. I've been trying to find out what the quality of the oil is. I don't think it is the kind of, I don't think it's the kind of light, sweet crude that you have in Saudi Arabia, Libya, and Nigeria. Because if that were true, the big oil companies would already be all over there. Um, but there's not much of that kind of oil left. Uh, eventually, the oil expir exploration and drilling will come one way or another. There's also enormous Russia-China competition all over the region. There are navies from every major power in the world present there in the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. Um, and there are five military bases, including a U.S. military base in Djibouti. Uh, I think there are France, France, Japan, Saudi Arabia, uh, one more, plus the United States. And uh, now the United States wants to expand its military presence uh, to build a base, a military base in Berbera, which is a port on the Somali coast. Uh, on the coast of Somaliland, which is a secessionist state. And this, everything that's going around, on around this military base and this secessionist state is an important part of what's going on there right now. Uh, now, we could get back to that later. I'm going to go back to what you asked me about how many members there are of Al-Shabaab. <clears throat> I'm not sure that this is, that this is, is known with any kind of precision. The number I've heard is 7,000, uh, but it's sort of an elusive entity. And I don't think there's just one Al-Shabaab. I think there are several Al-Shababs, um, <clears throat> one of which is more about racketeering, setting up roadblocks, uh, charging taxes, charging illegal taxes, that sort of thing. And one that's more ideological. Um, See what else? What was the other part of that question? You asked me how many are there. Was the other part uh, of the question? Yeah, I think I asked. Uh, oh, you asked me why. Is, why if, if this is, oh, you asked me if, <laughs> if this isn't working. Why are they there? And I give you a list of other reasons why they're there. Um, it's just part of the U.S. determination to dominate the whole world militarily. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think that really like sums up everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what you said about um, 
it being such a strategic location is you know totally true i mean if we remember a little while back when one little ship got stuck in the yes uh, Suez, exactly. uh, canal, and then suddenly the world trades just shut down for like a week because it got stuck there you know i'd imagine that uh, if you look at a map somalia and um yemen are so close and if yeah. you just stuck one cannon or had one plane going around on the coast of Somalia, you could pretty much shut down world trade if you wanted to as well. Um, I guess uh, if we've talked about Al-Shabaab um, and their forces, but how big is uh, the U.S. presence? Oh, wait, let, let me say something about that. You, you're right in that if somebody blocked the Suez Canal intentionally, mm -hmm. then we could be on the verge of World War III. It's another site where, the, you know, in addition to Ukraine where that kind of potential exists anyway so go ahead uh, i mean I that's, say, that's exactly um, where i mean saudi oil goes to for the international community yeah well we've talked about al-shabaab and their presence what about the u.s presence in somalia how big is that um you wrote that uh u.s troops uh in the country have risen steadily to about 900 now but do you think it will stop there or could the u.s presence keep expanding and furthermore, what are they actually doing in Somalia right now? Well, first, with regard to the size, when in May 2022, Biden said he was going to reintroduce troops into Somalia, Trump had pulled them out. Really, He just pulled them into Kenya and Djibouti, but he had pulled them out of Somalia. Uh, he was still drone bombing. Trump was still drone bombing, but he pulled the troops out. And in May 2022, when Biden said he was going to reintroduce them, there was an account in the New York Times. And of course, because it was the New York Times, they released, you know, they had White House sources say, anonymous White House sources say, meaning that was what they wanted, <laughs> they wanted us to know. Um, and they said that the number was expected to be capped at 450. But here now, a year later, in this hearing, that Matt Gates forced on the forever war in Somalia, uh, he and Ryan Zinke both said 900. Uh, so that's double the original cap. And it had, it actually had not been reported before suddenly Zinke, uh, first Gates and then Zinke said that in the hearing on the vote to withdraw troops. Uh, so that's a significant escalation in itself. And you have and Ziggy made this speech about how we need more. We need all this support. We need communications. We need medevac. We need all kinds of support for these troops who are there. And went on about, you know, his usual line about how we have to fight them over there. We're going to have to fight them here, <laughs> which is preposterous. Um, so it's looking. It's looking like escalation on all sorts of fronts. AFRICOM asking for more, the president of Somalia asking for more, um, Ryan Zinke asking for more. Plus, you have to consider that there are military contractors swarming all over the place. There's, there's a green zone, something equivalent to the green zone in Iraq, in Mogadishu, that's rife with military contractors. And a lot, I, I read a st study yesterday um, published by Cost of War, Cost of War Project at Brown University. And there are a lot of problems I had with this study, but it, it had done really 
careful work about how much money is going in into this. And one of the main things is it concluded is that nobody knows. In part because the accounting is just not such that it's fully possible to, to determine. Uh, it's not all disclosed. And a lot of it is going to military contractors. You mentioned uh, uh, the president earlier, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. We were actually talking off air about him and um, why he is, uh, you know, asking for the U.S. to come in. What is his? What are his reasons for wanting U.S. troops in his country? Because that's, as you said, it's a very uh, controversial subject. But he seems to be pushing very much along the pro-U.S. get as many people in as possible line. Well, actually, I've been thinking about that for the last twenty-four hours myself. I think one of the best explanations is that the U.S. wants to be there and they essentially put him in power. The previ previous president, Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed, a.k.a. Farmajo, popularly known as Farmajo, uh, was hugely popular and is, I believe, still hugely popular. And one thing that I believe so many people have told me this and there's so many there's so much supporting evidence that Farmajo is hugely popular. And if a one person, one vote election were held today, he would be elected in a landslide. And for some years in between 2017, probably earlier, earlier, but I followed the struggle over this from 2017 to 2022, um, Somalia kept struggling to have a one person, one vote election. That is, they kept struggling to have the type of democracy that the U.S. crams down the throats of every other country at Muxin and the rest of the world. Uh, not, that, not that it promotes, you know, honest one-person, one-vote elections or one-person, one-vote elections that aren't then manipulated, but that's the system it's constantly promoting. And multi-party democracy and one-person, one-vote. Uh, Somalia kept trying to do this. and. There, there was, there were all kinds of impediments. Um, the alternative is a kind of very easily corrupted clan-based election. But Farmajo and his supporters kept struggling for one person, one vote, a type of election that Somalia has never had, and that was still going on when finally the U.S. said, "Okay, you're not going to get your international monetary funding." unless you go ahead and have this election by which they meant this corrupt clan based election. And the money was going to run out on May 17th, finally had their so-called election on May 15th. Farmasha was defeated. Hassan Sheikh Mohammed came into power. So I'd say one obvious answer is that the U S wants to be there. And Hassan Sheikh Mohammed owes his presidency to the U S. Uh, it's not, I'm not sure how much the Somali government is actually benefiting financially, because as I said, a lot of this money is going to private military contractors or it's going directly into the U.S. military, which is there. But I'm sure that the idea that this is ultimately going to be profitable for him is, is a factor. And it seemed like, I mean, before we got online, you spoke a little bit about the IMF. Um, kind of keeping countries like Somalia and yeah. um, Eritrea. Eritrea um, no, not, not, not Eritrea, Ethiopia. 
Ethiopia. Ethiopia, excuse me, Ethiopia, um, chained down by colonialism. And so mm-hmm. how, how is that how is that working for Somalia? What is the relationship between the IMF and um, Somalia right now? Well, I think Somalia is totally dependent on the IMF. This loan that they were not going to get in May 2022 was needed to pay soldiers' wages and essential services. And the IMF debt and other foreign debt is one of the biggest traps and one of the biggest dilemmas in Africa. It's like um, the foreclosure crisis that swept the U.S. and the rest of the world in 2008. They loan you all this money. Then you have to use the money to service the debt. You get further and further into debt. Then you have to borrow more money. Uh, if you default, you lose your you lose your international standing and you can't borrow any more money. So it's very hard to see a way out of this. Right now, uh, the IMF is bullying Ethiopia. Uh, I made some inquiries about this last night, about what the, the state of bullying Ethiopia is and and um, what the U.S. is asking. And someone I would expect to know said that they want Ethiopia to pull away from Russia and China. And uh, and what's obvious, what's out in the open, is that they've been trying to impose a particular um, outcome to the Ethiopian war to to identify certain parties as being responsible and, and threatening international judicial, um, threatening international prosecution, some sort of like an ad hoc criminal court of some sort, like the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda and Yugoslavia. But anyway, that's Ethiopia. Back to the IMF and, and Somalia. I think Somalia is totally dependent. Uh, I mean, it seems like they're dependent. Go ahead. It seems like they're dependent on this, um, you know, these IMF loans for debt relief while the country is uh, struck with famine and a major human humanitarian crisis as well. So, you know, they keep asking for more money and yet the country just seems to get plunged deeper, deeper into crisis. Well, look, I think I mentioned already that that more money goes into the U.S. counterterrorism operation here than the Somali government collects in tax revenue every year. Uh, this was reported in the Brown University study that I mentioned. Uh, imagine, imagine if half of that money that's gone into counterterrorism went into the actual development of Somalia. It went into energy infrastructure. One thing that was really hitting me last night was what if it went into building election infrastructure? Because one reason they kept trying to have this one person, one vote election uh, and, and could not was not having election infrastructure. Well, I don't think that could cost more than a fraction of what is going into these U.S. counterterrorism operations. Right. So I have a question about um, a recent resolution that was um, associated with the likes of Republican Matt Getz and Democratic um, Senator Ilhan Omar, right. or Congressman, excuse me, Ilhan Omar right. herself, which she is a Somali American. You've suggested, yeah. however, 
that this resolution, which basically proposed and put forth in the U.S. House, it called for the U.S. to pull its troops out of Somalia. But you've suggested that this resolution was little more than political theater and that the likes of Getz and Omar are not truly interested in opposing U.S. actions in, in Africa. So wh- why, why do you say that? What's your analysis on this? Well, I wouldn't actually say that about Gates. Um, I think he, he really does want to end the forever wars. And one thing you hear if you listen to him and his allies is that he thinks they're basically distractions from checking China in the Pacific or <laughs> from, from the big war, the big war that's inevitably coming. Um, he is a big China hawk and thinks these, these unending engagements in Syria and Somalia, he's going to bring up a similar resolution about Niger. And he sincerely thinks they're, they're a waste. And he also has in his Florida district, a number of, um, vets who are bitter about the experience that they've had in Afghanistan and other Middle East wars, Middle East or you know, South Asian. Um, so, so he, he gets, he gains some political advantage there, but also I think for both of them, they had to consider, they're considering the upcoming election. Like Gates, I, I have to appreciate Gates for for forcing these votes. By forcing these votes, he's actually reminding people that there are 900 troops in Syria. Now, there are, it came out, which we didn't know, 450 had been the last number cited. Now we know there are 900. And that, in Somalia. Um, in Somalia, 900 in Somalia. Um, did I, if I didn't say that, let me repeat that. Yeah, I think I did. 450 was the number cited by the New York Times when, in May 2022, Biden said that he was going to reintroduce troops. Uh, The New York Times said the number would be capped at 450. It just came out. It hadn't been uh, published um, or or announced anyplace else that there were now 900. But Gates and Zinke uh, both said that in the hearing, and as I said, I'm sure I said the Zinke said we needed more. Um, now, remind me where were we? What was what was the last question? I would love to know about Ilhan Omar. And oh, why oh yeah, oh yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. And Ilhan Omar, she had to answer to. Um, she has both her Somali American community to answer to in Minneapolis, yeah. and uh, some of some of our tiny anti-war community. I know that they both put pressure on her to vote no. And it it was strange that she was so silent. You would expect her as a Somali American to be the most vocal representative about this. And if she were truly opposed to U.S. wars, she would be the person who had introduced the resolution. She would have introduced a stronger resolution. She would have gone to the press and spoken out about it instead of leaving that to Gates, a... (laughs) <laughs> an immigrant bashing Trump supporting China hawk. Uh, she did not do that, but she ultimately voted in favor of it, in favor of withdrawing, as did the rest of the squad. Only about half the progressive caucus could have, if you look at the numbers, that the progressive caucus is just over a hundred members and only some 50 some voted 
to withdraw from Syria and then voted to withdraw from Somalia. So at best, half the Progressive Caucus did. Um, but by forcing this vote, um, Gates, Gates was forcing uh, Republicans uh, and, and any, anyone else voting for them to answer uh, to the voters in 2024 about why they're still supporting th- these forever wars. And that would be particularly sig- significant to the America First community that Gates shares with Donald Trump. Someone like Ilhan Omar also has, has said some of the tiny anti-war, tiny U.S. anti-war community to answer to. It's really interesting. You know, Ilhan Omar is an interesting person because, you know, she came out swinging right away when she um, became a congresswoman yeah. against, uh, you know, money in politics. And yet yeah. she did, yeah. after joining the Foreign House, it was the Foreign House Committee, she supported sanctions against certain countries. Um, she has pushed Russia phobia stuff, Russia gate narratives. And so I think on the anti-war front, you know, she's quite establishment when it comes to the Democratic Party stances on a lot of things. She's quite and even voted and even voted to for weapons sales to Israel. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I mean I I, I didn't notice that she did that. It's amazing how much trouble she got into. She lost her seat on House uh, Foreign Relations Committee. She was on the House Subcommittee, the Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa. I don't believe she actually supported sanctions. She did vote for sending billions to Ukraine. Um, I believe she voted against sanctions in Russia, and I believe generally she takes a stance against sanctions. Uh, but she did. She did a lot of other, um, other other things that shouldn't have been done, and other dastardly things on that House Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa. Uh, at one point, she she was really pushing these elections, which, as I told told you, were really corrupt clan based elections, which the U.S. forced instead of promoting the one person, one vote that Fromageau and his supporters had been struggling for for so long. But it's just amazing. That's one of that's one of the things I think people should most understand. This country, Somalia, struggled to have the kind of basic democracy that the U.S. has. And the U.S. promotes one person, one vote, multi-party democracy, and and the U.S. crushed it and said, if you don't hurry up and have this corrupt clan-based election that will benefit us. Then we're going to yank your IMF funds. Um, she was pushing that as well. She was demanding that Farmajo step down, that he'd been there too long. His term in office and the term of the whole parliament had been extended because they kept going back and forth, struggling about the attempt to have this one person, one vote election. Um, <clears throat> so she kept demanding and she did this on Twitter. She did it in that House Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa. Uh, at one point, she was saying we should use a carrot and stick. Uh, we should use carrots and sticks with Somalia. He's like threatening. She was advocating threatening them with the IMF um, in order to get them to hurry up and have this election, so-called so-called election, this corrupt clan-based election. 
Yeah, I mean, I, on the other hand, I did appreciate how much she made Elliot Abrams squirm in that Senate committee uh, hearing when uh, she basically told him how much of a torturer he was. But I would definitely say that uh, you probably shouldn't have political heroes, especially in the United States, because uh, at some point <laughs> exactly. you're probably going to get burned. Um, exactly. This is kind of off, off topic, but I get so tired of hearing so much discussion of particular leaders, and this includes Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. Um, because the question is always not not who do you elect, but what can you make them do? Sure. And how can you make them do it? And that's why I appreciated the Gates resolution because he was forcing uh, House reps to answer to the voters about this. He was he was letting us know that these conflicts are still going on, uh, that they're costly, that soldiers like those in his district. Um, uh, die in them, die in them, get wounded, and uh, serve longer than they should. A lot of people served a lot longer than they should have in Afghanistan. They kept getting, having their their terms to serve extended. Um, so he was, he, he let us know that that was um, happening, and and forced the the House reps to answer to their voters in twenty twenty four. Um, there's such little knowledge about Somalia in the West. So I think I want to just go back to something you mentioned a little okay. bit earlier, and that's the secessionist movement in Somalia. Oh, yeah, in yeah the definitely. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that there, the war, its effects on the people, and why the U.S. has been uh, tacitly or sometimes not so tacitly supporting the nationalists there? Well, in the National Defense Authorization Act 2023, there's a section calling for um, developing a particular relationship with the government of Somaliland, which is a secessionist state. Um, there are six states, six states in Somalia, and then the capital of Mogadishu, which is independent administration. Uh, and Somaliland is one of them, but they've been trying to secede for a long time. They still don't have the recognition of the UN or any of its 193 member nations. I believe they have the recognition of Taiwan and they keep trying to present themselves as the Taiwan of Africa. That's really going to stand up to China. I mean, it's, it's, I'm laughing because the idea of Somaliland standing up to China is kind of comical. Nobody's going to stop China in Africa. Uh, but Somaliland is presenting itself as the Taiwan of Africa that will do its best. And there are a lot of conservative forces in the U.S. who promote this idea of Somaliland. And I, I have an independent Somaliland. Um, they think they, that this posturing as the Taiwan of Africa will curry U.S. favor and perhaps get them independent recognition. Um, I believe it's in part because of the U.S. plan to build this military base in Berbera in a, a port off the Somaliland coast that the secession um, that that nationalists started to rise up against the secessionists because the U.S. plan to build this port was an indicator that the U.S. was moving towards recognizing Somaliland state uh, as an independent nation, uh, even though it said it was not. I mean, once you deal with a government within a government, once you deal with a state government, you instead of dealing with the national government, 
you're violating that country's sovereignty. It's like, say, um, Russia decided it wanted to strike a deal with Alaska to build a, <laughs> to build a military base off its coast, something like that. Um, but this national struggle started it started in a border region called um, Sulsanag and Kain, and particularly in a city, uh, the city of Lausanag, which has a long nationalist history. Um, but that was right on the border. And something very interesting that's happened this week is that there's been a nationalist uprising deep within Somaliland, way beyond its border border region with the other states and in a sort of Netherland that's that's constantly being contested. This was deep within Somaliland. And some people have been killed. There's been a violent reaction. But these are people saying they are Somalis. They believe in the Somali nation. <laughs> they want to have a country. They don't want to, to, to split off into what another oil republic or a bunch of oil republics like the UAE, which is one of the possibilities here. There's always, <laughs> well, there's always a threat that Somalia will actually break up, break up formally. At this point, a good friend and one of my best sources, um, Abdi Wahab, Abdi Wahab's Abdi Samad, um, he told me that Somalia is nothing but a flag and a seat at the UN, mm. because the the central government is is so weak. I mean, consider this. There's a, a secessionist struggle going on in the north of the country. People are getting killed. Hundreds of thousands of refugees have moved into Ethiopia. And the federal government is doing nothing. Uh, I think one reason is that all the money in the foreign support is about fighting al-Shabaab because the U.S. and to some degree the rest of the West have encouraged this Taiwan of Africa, independent Somaliland idea. Uh, they're not encouraging Hassan Sheikh Mohammed to do anything about it. But could he? Doesn't seem like he has the firepower to do it if he wanted to. He's not really in control of this fight against al-Shabaab. The U.S. is. Uh, and imagine you have a secessionist struggle going on in your country and you don't even try to stop it. That's how weak the, the national government is. Um, you wrote in a recent article entitled The U.S. Shoots Itself in the Foot in Africa mm -hmm. that Washington has done a really poor job promoting its interests on the continent in a way that's attractive to these rising um, African countries, intimidating nations and pushing them actually towards working with China and Russia because mm -hmm. those countries are not threatening coups. They're not threatening to overthrow the government. They're, you know, especially with China, they are offering... Uh, these very poor countries uh, to rebuild, build schools, hospitals, and uh, modernize the countries in a way where there's more um, multipolarity. So, could you explain that for us? And and can we can we start to dream of a day when U.S. domination of Africa is a thing of the past? Yeah. Well, like I said, nobody's going to stop China in Africa. Um, and one thing to understand about China in Africa is that. China is resource poor. Uh, the United States, the United States is at this point relatively res resource poor as well, 
because it's, it's so many of its resources have already been mined out. Um, but China's resource poor, so is the United States. So um, African resources are an exit, securing African resources are an existential imperative for them. That's not true of Russia, which is so resource rich that there are only a few things it needs. It needs a bauxite in, I believe it's um, Guinea. Um, but although, you know, naturally it has business interests who are interested in going in and, and uh, profiting in Africa, it's not, like I said, so much the existential imperative that it is in China. And it's silly. It's just silly to think that you're going to stop China in Africa. China did take big hits in Libya. Um, China lost a, re a lot of real estate investments in Libya. Um, but uh, in the instance I was talking about in that article, uh, there was something called AGOA, the African Growth Op and Opportunity Act at stake. AGOA uh, allows countries in Africa to, well, it allows um, anyone manufacturing in Africa to export to the United States tariff-free. And the U.S. canceled AGOA in, I think it was January 2021, uh, because of the Ethiopian War. Uh, as a means of, of bullying the government into uh, negotiating with the TPLF into uh, into no longer fighting the the TPLF, which is a long a longstanding uh, U.S. client in Africa. The TPLF controlled Ethiopia for 27 years brutally. Uh, when it lost power, it retreated and then um, into Tigray State and started this war in November 2020. Um, the U.S. was taking the side of the TPLF in the war, and so in January 2021, it accused Ethiopia of um, all kinds of atrocities and said that it was canceling AGOA. That cost a lot of Ethiopians their jobs, particularly a lot of poor women who... Uh, were finding their first job in the money economy as, out of the subsistence farming economy. Um, and, and the government had actually um, built an industrial park, which is not, you know, not, not as inhumane as some of these manufacturing situations that you hear. I mean, it, there were a number of provisions. Um, it wasn't a place where the roof was collapsing on people and it's, and it's still there and it's still, there's still manufacturing going on. And China, when the U.S. said recently it was not going to uh, reinstate Ethiopia's eligibility for AGOA because it still did, wasn't getting the post-war results that it wanted. And China turned around and said, OK, well, we'll give you totally tariff-free access to the Chinese market, which is, of course, much, much larger. And the Chinese also built the railway uh, from Ethiopia to Djibouti, to the coast in Djibouti, to the ports there. Uh, I don't see that much Chinese presence in uh, Somalia, but I went to Ethiopia and Eritrea and I saw China everywhere there. And there was one thing I, uh, just backtracking a little bit about Eritrea, we're talking about the IMF, 
Eritrea is a tiny, very poor, but very fiercely independent country that has never taken out IMF debt. The president of Eritrea, um, president, of Eritrea, president Isaias Afergi, has said uh, debt is like a drug. You keep taking it, pretty soon you're addicted. And that's a perfect description. Uh, the United States can't stand Eritrea. Um, it's often called the Cuba of Africa. And the West constantly, constantly demonizes Eritrea, likes to call it the North Korea of Africa, because, of course, everyone's supposed to hate North Korea, even people who maybe like Cuba. Um, but I went there and loved it. It's like a has a very egalitarian atmosphere. There's nobody sleeping on the streets. There's nobody begging on the streets. Um, the people running the government are very modest, modest people driving old cars. Um, so you, you can, and, and Eritrea is so hated by the West that it is uh, excluded from the SWIFT system. There are four countries excluded from the SWIFT system for conducting international trade. Um, you know, simultaneous transactions. Uh, and they are uh, North Korea, Iran, and in the last year or two, Russia, of course, and Eritrea. A lot of people didn't notice this, but at the time uh, that they withdrew Ogoa, and shortly, no, it's actually a little bit before, I think, they, um, I can't remember whether it was before or after, but that's a detail. They imposed sanctions on Eritrea and Ethiopia, and the most harsh sanction was excluding Eritrea from SWIFT. And to take this back to, to Somalia, the reason for a lot of the U.S. aggression here, particularly since Biden came back into office, is that in 2018, when the TPLF was uh, driven from power, and Abiy Ahmed came to power, and he won the Nobel Prize for negotiating peace with Eritrea. There'd been a long-running war between the TPLF-led Ethiopia and Eritrea, particularly, really, between the TPLF and Eritrea. And he won the Nobel Prize for that. And shortly after negotiating peace with Eritrea, he and uh, the Eritrean president, Saida Sefwerki, and Farmajo, the then president of Somalia, who might have told you was hugely popular and would still probably win in a landslide if a one-person, one-vote election were held today, they negotiated a tripartite agreement to cooperate uh, culturally um, in development and in security uh, and, and, and in trade. And... The U.S. couldn't stand this, couldn't stand this kind of independence emerging in the Horn of Africa in this hugely geostrategic region. And so it backed this, this war in Ethiopia. Um, it got Farmajo out of power. Uh, Eritrea and the president of Eritrea are still standing because the Seljuks, it's so fiercely independent uh, that it is... It is, it is less vulnerable, P particularly it is less vulnerable because it doesn't take all this, all this foreign aid and IMF funding. Um, and Eritrea is definitely tending towards Russia and China. I saw, I saw China everywhere in Eritrea, I mean, like doing business. And 
Eritrea repeatedly votes against censuring Russia in Ukraine, about Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> there are usually a handful of African countries who, who abstain, and Eritrea is the one who, who, that always votes against these resolutions at the UN to censure Russia. Uh, so, of course, they're hated more and more. Um, there was that House resolution that actually passed, just ridiculous and insulting, the one called the Countering Malign Activities, the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act. This was put forward by Gregory Nixon. It actually Ilhan Omar voted for it, yes. Uh, and and no, this this just basically said that, that Africa wasn't supposed to have anything to do with Russia, um, <laughs> that it wasn't supposed to allow Russia to be involved in um, extracting African resources, and and that it mustn't <laughs> it mustn't be voting with Russia on on the UN Security Council or in in the General Assembly. Uh, People were so insulted that there was quite a reaction to that, particularly by the South African. I think she's the foreign minister, um, but w one of one of the top people in, in the South African cabinet uh, really just let let. Uh, was that? I can't remember whether it was Biden or Blinken, but I, it was Blinken. When Blinken was in Africa, that South African minister really let him have it about that act, and. It never and said, well, we hope this isn't going to pass in the Senate. And fortunately, it did not. But people don't like being told what to do. <laughs> Something aside from all, you know, the concrete things like carrots and sticks like um, aid and uh, the, the international monetary fund loans. People just don't like being told what to do. Well, and it seems like the struggle against colonialism is continuing in these countries. Um, oh, yeah. So um, we would like to wrap up with you, and we really appreciate you joining us today. Um, Anne Garrison is a journalist and contributing editor to the Black Agenda Report. You can also find her work at The Gray Zone and at Pacifica Radio. And um, we also just recently interviewed the grandson of um, Nelson Mandela, Nicosi Mandela. And that interview should be going up um, later today as well um, in light of what's happening in Gaza with Israeli warplanes um, targeting civilians. I mean, they've killed oh. entire families in their sleep. So we've got some good content coming out for that as well. You know, you reminded me, there's one other thing I haven't mentioned that we didn't get into is another reason for Somali's hostility towards the United States. There's a lot of anti-American sentiment. Uh, one reason is anger about support for Israeli re repression of the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. That is an issue in Somalia. Well, it seems like the general population across Africa stands in solidarity with Palestine and more countries are, yes. um, are standing up to uh, Israeli apartheid uh, including South Africa I and mean, what they're doing is really incredible. Mm -hmm. But as long as the U S uh, dominates, <laughs> there will be no accountability for Israeli aggression um, considering well, Israel. Yeah. They, and Israelis showed up at some point, the 
Israel got observer status at the African Union. Yeah, uh, which caused a big, big controversy. There are a lot of people unhappy about it, and their delegates showed up at the last meeting of the African Union, and they kicked him out. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I think what's really, yeah, I mean, Africa is definitely rising against colonialism like I've never mm-hmm. seen them before. And so that's something definitely to applaud. But anyways, um, Anne and Alan, thank you guys for being here. And until next time, we will talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. Yep, bye-bye. Nice to finally meet you. You too, you too. <laughs> <laughs>